Good morning, church. Man, looks like a beautiful day out there. Maybe a little chilly. So let's get above freezing today. So I'll take it. Get rid of some of those ice spots before I fall down. I'm good for that usually once or twice a year. Zero so far in 2022. Let's pray it stays that way, but confidence is low. Oh, man. Great to be back. As Leah mentioned, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 is a little of what came before and a little that comes after. Um, in and of itself, without context, might seem like there's not really a lot here that I could necessarily uh, sink my teeth into. Um, my hope, as we were talking a little bit in our small group, my hope is as we go through these uh, studies, we do this very exegetically, meaning what does the word say, not what am I reading into it. It's a big $10 word basically means what's the Bible say. And part of doing that job well is understanding what the Bible says around what it is that I'm actually looking at. Uh, that's called context, and we need it. We want it. Um, but uh, sometimes it can be difficult to glean that. So I'm hoping as we go through this that there's some benefit in seeing exactly uh, what the context is, um, knowing that, that, that the Bible does indeed connect, and that when you're reading a passage, maybe even just a single verse, if you don't know what's going on around it, you may find yourself at a loss. Today's passage in some regards could be that way, but hopefully we'll get some connective tissue to be able to make some sense out of it. So we'll be in 2 Corinthians um, chapter 2, reading the whole thing. If you've got your Bibles, feel free to uh, uh, follow along with. If, if not, it'll be up on the screen. Let's read some scripture. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I cause you pain, who is there to make me glad but the, one whom, but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has not caused it to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was open for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God. <clears throat> Pardon me. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm thankful for, uh, I seem to be praying this a lot, God, but I'm thankful for, for scripture that doesn't just jump right off the page as something that I've studied and heard a thousand times in church, Lord, that we all know how this goes, Lord. I'm thankful for passages that require us to really concentrate, really think about this, really be prayerful about it, really, really honestly rely on the Holy Spirit, not the words of man or books or learned individuals, 
to help us understand what Scripture means, Lord. I pray that we, we rely on the Scripture or on the Spirit for all matters due Scripture. Yes, it's wonderful that we have lots of places to come and study and hear the Word proclaimed rightly, Lord. I pray that I'm able to do that. I pray that our church is, if little else, a, a church where the, the Word is proclaimed rightly. But Lord, we know that the Word is without power if not for your Holy Spirit taking that Word and changing us with it. So, Lord, I'm thankful for your spirit. I'm thankful for the indwelling of it. And I'm thankful that um, we do not, there's no requirement on us to be able to understand this word, Lord. It's divine because you said so, and you can make it infinitely powerful in our lives. So, your sons and I pray. Amen. All right. So much good stuff. I could probably use this slide in just about everyone, but specifically here in, in chapter two, I think. How these chapters have, have built, even coming out of 1 Corinthians, is, is just super rich. Um, these are relatively short reads. You could read 1 and 2 Corinthians over a couple of days. No problem. Now, really studying it will probably take you longer than that, but um, they, there's so much interweaving. It's easy to take a little verse out of here, and there's lots of good stuff, even in a single verse. When you connect it all together, it's just super, super, super fun. So Paul touches on the issue of disagreement from last week. That's kind of where he opens up here. But he transitions away from what happened, and he's now focusing on what happens next. So if you remember last week, he was getting on a little bit. There's some disagreements. When are you going to be here? You know, it seems like you're saying yes and no. We don't like what's going on here, Paul. You said you'd come, and then you didn't come. And then you know, uh, it seems like maybe you don't know what you're doing. Maybe you're just flying by the seat of your pants here. Paul starts off here saying pain was not intended. His goal was never to hurt these people. Now, you might think, well, that's kind of silly. Why would they think that? I don't know. Um, but a lot of times, our emotions get the better of us. We start getting into a downward spiral of trying to figure out what's going on and why. And we end up in a place that's pretty dark, like maybe everybody's out to get me. Maybe they don't care about me. Maybe they wish I wasn't here. Maybe they want me to leave. Maybe they don't want me around anymore. Paul fears for this. It's evident, right, that he doesn't want them to think that they are on Paul's naughty list, that they're not redeemable. Oh, I'm so frustrated with you, and I'm, I'm glad you're suffering, and I hope you feel terrible over what you did, and I want you to wallow in that. He cares for them deeply, and he's not a tyrant. He's not about do it or else. Every single thing we see Paul say, especially Paul, he does a wonderful job of capstoning all this with Christ's commandment, Christ's living. It's not about Paul. It's not about just being good it's about being saved. It's about eternal life. And when that enters the equation, we expect things to change. That's what Paul wants for them. A closer walk with thee, as it were. We sing about this sort of thing. That's what Paul desires. He wants them to be able to be close to God. And if they're all close to God, they'll be close to one another. And the infighting ceases. And they're focused on things they need to be focused on. His words are important and they needed to be said. But he's, he's not, and he won't apologize because he's not sorry. There's not a tone of sorrow here. You might think, no, it's sorry. Well, there's a difference between sadness and sorrow. Now, that line's a little bit blurry, but if we think about these two words and what they mean, Paul was sad because his news was tough. He knew people would take it wrong. He knew they'd be upset about it. They'd feel personally attacked. All the things that people deal with when you try to help them through correction or constructive criticism, maybe even not so constructive criticism, right? But don't do that. That's not good. Oh, that's my favorite thing to do. You hate me. You don't want me to have fun. No, I love you, but don't do that. I think it's fun to put my hand on a hot stove. Don't do it, right? 
If you see your child walking towards a wall with a, you know, a, a paper clip, getting ready to stick it in the outlet, you're probably going to do just about anything to stop them from doing it. Swap their arm, knock them down, whatever. Right? That could kill them, for crying out loud. So you're going to stop them. Would you be sorry that you stopped them from killing themselves by electrocution? Probably not. But you'd likely be sad if you bruised, if you bruised them, swatting them away. In an effort to save them or protect them, you may cause other harm to them. Maybe that harm was not intentional, but it was necessary. That's Paul's tone here. He's sad that they are angry or they feel put upon or they feel frustrated or angry at one another or angry at him or whatever. He's sad, but he's not sorry. He knew they'd be angry. It's evident that he knows what's going on. Paul's not caught by surprise here. He's not like, oh, you're kidding me, they're mad. Oh, he knows how it goes. He's been in the, the, the church for a long time. He spent some time as a pretty mucky-muck in the Jewish culture. And you can bet the same thing happened there, right? When someone gets chastised, they retaliate. And they go out and they start spreading lies. Or he's a jerk. Or I heard he stole stuff. And he shouldn't even be up there. And I don't need him telling me how to live and all this kind of mess. Paul knows what's going to happen. But he has to say it. Because it's important that he says it. We know it's important because it's in the Word. He knew they'd be angry, and that's a bummer for him. Paul is not interested in making people mad. He doesn't want them to feel pain or feel hurt. Nobody wants their kid to hurt if you, if you swat their hand away from a hot stove to prevent a third-degree burn and it injures their arm. You don't want that, but you certainly don't want their hand burnt. That's a much more severe injury that could come, and that's what Paul fears here. If you let some of this stuff fester, if you let people infight and, and just turn the church over to whatever people in Corinth want and not what God wants and not what Jesus commanded, then you're going to end up with a much more severe burn. It's kind of a hell pun. But anyway, it's true. So yes, swat their hands away. Maybe it bruises their arm. Maybe they get upset. I can't believe that really hurt. Well, yeah, but I can't have you putting your hand on there. I can't have you sticking a fork in the wall. That will kill you, and I know better, and, and until you get it through your head not to do it, I'm going to do whatever it takes to prevent you from doing that. You can do plenty of other stuff that I don't agree with, but some of these things, I'm going to have to take some steps. But to reiterate, he's not sorry he did it, just sad that he had to. I hear this stuff said, and I think to myself, I sound like my, my parents or my grandparents. So it's going to hurt me a lot more than it's going to hurt you. Ah, baloney. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's going to hurt me a lot more than whatever. I don't, is your hand stinging? Give me a break, right? But that's the truth, right? When you love somebody and you are called to discipline them, it's very painful. And I speak from experience. I don't like disciplining Emma. Now, we're blessed in that that hasn't been a huge issue. She kind of self-disciplined at even a young age. She would get upset sometimes and get emotional and say, I need to, we had a little rug. If she, she can't, until you compose yourself, go sit on your rug. Well, so after a while, she's like, I just need to go sit on my rug. And she'd go sit on her rug by herself until she calmed down, and then she'd come off the rug. That alone made me feel bad, right? But, but it was good. It was the notion of, hey, one of the things we do in a society is we, we got to control ourselves. There's times for, for dumping out of emotion and, and getting angry and whatever else. But, but largely speaking, we want to try to learn, if we can, to control those things. That's what Paul's saying here. You've got to learn to control yourselves. And then you've got to learn to control your families. And then you've got to learn to control your church. He spent a huge letter talking about that in great detail. We just studied it. There were some real calls to the carpet in that letter. Ladies, be quiet. Why? Because you need to be asking your husbands these kind of questions, not interrupting church with all this stuff. You're not really caring about the answers to the questions. You're just wanting to start something. You just want to butt in and be a distraction, let everybody see you. That's what he's driving at. Do you think that's going to make those folks happy? 
You think those ladies are like, yeah, that's right. I, I am kind of mouthy in church. I should probably be talking to my husband. And those husbands are going to say, you're right. I need to step up and lead my family in the word. No. They're going to say, who's he to tell me that? My husband doesn't know anything. And he's too busy to learn. Well, that's true. I do the best I can. And blah, 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 all these defenses. You can't tell me how to live. He knows how they're going to react to it. And he's sad that he had to do it. It's going to hurt Paul a lot more than it's going to hurt them. But Paul's primary concerns are far deeper than that. He's, he's sad, but not regretting. Many are fighting because of Paul's letter. We can infer that pretty clearly. He knows what's going on. There's people that are up in arms. In fighting over the support of Paul or the harshness of his tone, how can you stand behind a guy like that? We've seen this hinted in some of our prior studies about people that supported Paul, some supported Apollos, right? There's all these little factions that are formed up. Well, I'm a big fan of Paul. Whatever he says, I do. Like, well, you don't even know if it's true. Well, I don't care. Paul said it, I believe it. Right? Paul's like, that's not good either. We're, we're trying to get to the root of what Christ would have us do here. Accusations about Paul's wherewithal after coming, after not coming as promised. If you remember the first letter, hey, I have to come visit you soon. But he didn't. He didn't come. And people are like, oh, Paul's a liar. Got it. Well, no, I mean, plans change. Yeah, but he said. And he, we addressed that last week. Well, you know, how can you say yes and no at the same time? Right? There's, there's, there's people that are angry about this. And Paul knows as they get the letter from him about the prior situation, they got mad. Now as they receive this letter and they hear the truth of what has occurred, they're going to feel terrible. If somebody didn't show up for your party, has anyone ever dealt with this? Like, let's say you made an event. I had a birthday party for a kid and you invited all their friends and nobody showed up whatever. And you're angry. And you're like, I can't believe those folks. I mean, I didn't get a call. I didn't get a text. Just no shows. Unbelievable. And they were close friends. And the next day you find out that their dog was choking and they had to run to the emergency vet and the dog passed away. And sorry, we couldn't make it, but it was just so frenetic. We were so sad about the whole thing. And so we're just terrible. And, and how do you feel about that? Well, I'm glad your dog's dead because you stood us up at the birthday party. No. You think, oh my gosh, I can't believe I thought that about them. I can't believe I just assumed that they were inconsiderate or assumed that they were jerks. This is kind of what Paul's driving at here. These people assumed the worst of Paul. Oh, he's, a, he's, whiff, he's, he's, a, he's waffling on decisions. He doesn't want to do it. He, maybe he does. He's just saying things to be nice, but he, he's, he doesn't really care about us. He mentioned the word vacillating, right? That's just, he's going between two choices. Am I coming or not? I don't know. I'm, I'm just, he's spineless and he's weak and he says he's a big man of God, but he can't even make a decision. He can't even stick by his word. When they read this letter and they hear what was happening, some of the stuff that happened in Asia, some suffering that occurred, Paul began to be convicted that his delay was for their benefit, so they had time to correct some of these behaviors maybe before he came back. Some people that felt that way about Paul are going to suddenly be like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe I said that about him. I can't believe I was standing so strongly against Paul. And what's Paul's answer to that? Forgive them. If people are causing pain to Paul, if people are putting down his good name and trying to make him suffer or feel bad or wretched for the decision that he made, that Paul says that indirectly that causes everybody to suffer. I know that it does. Right? We can all probably relate to that. Anytime someone wants to attack somebody in a group, there's immediately camps will form. The people that support that person, the people that don't. Now we've got a, div a division based off of 
Somebody deciding that we're going to try to address an issue, try to cause some suffering, try to really let Paul have it. Paul supporters? Oh, no. You can't say that about Paul. He's a great guy. And other people that are kind of in the middle are quiet. The Paul haters, I agree with you. That guy's an idiot and he shouldn't be doing this. And that's why let's not even invite him back. Now you got all these different people trying to figure out which way is up. But Paul's point here is it's not about Paul. You know, the old, I've got big shoulders, I can take it. That's cool. But when this stuff starts happening in, in churches, camps form up and we all suffer. Now, not everybody's going to get run out on a rail like they, maybe the people that didn't like Paul want to do. But they're immediately going to see somebody else that they just heard attack somebody that they consider their father in the faith. And they're going to think less of the person that's attacking Paul. And the person that supports Paul is going to be thought less of by the person that's attacking Paul. How can you stand behind a guy like that? How can you attack a guy like that? Now, we're at odds. Why? Because of Paul. That is why Paul's sad. The fact that he could be causing division because of his very existence in the church is heartbreaking for him. But Paul's saying, forgive him. Those that supported me and you disagree with them, forgive them. For those that stood against me and you supported me, forgive them. Don't do not let the church fall apart because of me. That's Paul's word, not me. Don't let this church fall apart because of me. I can say that from my perspective too. But Paul's saying, it's not worth it. If you forgive them, I forgive them. I hold no grudges. I don't need people to fight for me. I don't want the church splitting up because of me, because of the choices that I've made and the reason that I've made it. And he's trying to justify those choices. But I think we all know, when you've made up your mind for something, until the Holy Spirit gets a hold of you and changes it, people will write it right down into the ground. I don't care what anybody says. I think he did this, that, and the other. I know. I've heard all the thing and seen the affidavits, and, but I don't believe it. He's a liar, and he didn't want to come back. He doesn't like us at all. And I don't care what anybody says. I'm never going to change my mind. Okay. What's the answer there? Forgive them. Forgive them for that. Hopefully, that will go away. Hopefully, the Spirit will take it from them. They will repent of it, and life will move on. But for many people, once this forgiveness begins, you see this weird thing where it's like, I, I am sorry. I am sorry for what I said about Paul. I'm sorry for the way I treated everybody. I got caught up in this. Let's go get Paul, this Paul bashing thing, and I'm just terrible. But I, I feel awful about it. We have two options when something like this occurs, church. We can say, you're darn right you feel bad about it. I told you. He had a good reason not to be. I can't believe you took that. I can't believe you stood with them and called Paul an idiot. It's just unbelievable. I know I said I'm sorry. Well, you know, sorry's not good enough. Anybody ever heard, them, everybody heard that said or said it? That's a thing. Sorry's not good enough. Paul's saying it is good enough. Sorry, great. Knowing they have caused the pain, knowing how many people maybe they've disappointed, that will be punishment enough. You don't need to shellack it with another layer of guilt. Now, don't you feel awful? I don't know if you remember, there's a Christmas story scene where, you know, the Flick gets his tongue stuck to the, the post, and the kids are there, and like, well, I don't know. And she comes in after Flick gets off there. Flick won't tell her who did it, who put him up to it. So the teacher goes on this, you know, tirade about, well, you, those of you that did it know who you are. And I'm sure the guilt you feel is far worse than any punishment I could lay on you. And don't you just feel terrible what you've done? And, and Ralphie's like, oh, adults love to say stuff like that. But we all know it's better not to get caught, <laughs> right? Like, th that mindset is real. I don't know who to punish. And I don't know what to do. But, 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 but shellacking it on doesn't matter. It doesn't help. All it does is, is hurt. And if you get to a place like the, the pun being made there in that show is eventually people just don't care. They're distanced. It's a teacher and the students. It's an us and them. We don't want that in our church. 
We don't want the people in the right and the people in the wrong and the people that did the wrong and the people that didn't do the wrong and, and here's the camp and we forgive them sort of but we always bring it up and let them, we will never let them forget that they screwed up about Paul, right? Don't do that. The guilt they feel when they realize the truth, that's punishment enough. There's no need to punish beyond the need for repentance. If I can tell, if there's anything we take away from the sermon, that's going to be my words and I pray that there's very few, it's this last sentence. Church, we do not need to punish people beyond the need for repentance. We love to watch people serve their term. Oh, you repented? Doesn't matter. The law says five years. Boom. You're kicked out of the class. You're kicked out of this. You're not welcome here. We don't care about the spiritual condition. We don't care about your state of mind. We don't care about any evidence of repentance. The rules are the rules are the rules are the rules. And Paul's saying we don't need to worry about that. Is it reasonable for us to, to encourage people to repent, to punish people that do wrong? It is. It is reasonable to do that. But once repentance is real... There's just no need to do it anymore. Beyond that, it becomes like a a masochistic play where I just really want to turn the screws. I want you to remember what it was like before you repented. That way you'll never do it again. Paul's saying, spoiler, they're going to do it again. Sinner's going to sin. We are going to sin. What we want is to repent. Repent once, repent a thousand times, just repent. When people begin to feel put upon because of a past sin... We've now put them into a group. We've now divided the church based on that. The people that were once against Paul, we forgave them. (laughs) But they sit in the prior Paul disparagers section of the church. And anytime, you know, Paul's coming in, we always make a really left-handed comment like, hey, I hope nobody wants to uh, kick Paul out of the church again. (laughs) And the people that were part of that crew are like, yeah, 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 we know, we know. And they're, in the meantime, looking for another church because enough's enough. I said I was sorry. I made a mistake. I'm over it. Got to let it go. Got to let it go. How do we let it go beyond that? Love them. Paul is not pulling punches here. I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. Talking about that person that, he, that you've just forgiven. These are such powerful words. It's powerful because he's not calling for you to play nice. He's not calling you to go through the motions. It's affirmation of love. Now, I want you to think, everybody, about somebody that you love and that loves you. And think about what in your mind would indicate an affirmation from that person that they love you. The kind of thing that reminds you regularly how much they care about you. That is what Paul's calling us to do in the church. Now, there might be some affirmations of love like in marriages that would be inappropriate in the church. But generally speaking, you catch my drift, right? There are things, there are ways that you can learn about the, somebody's love language or however you wanted to phrase that. But the things that, that Chris likes to know, I like to hear, I like to see people do for me that indicate to me that they care about me. Paul's saying, do that. Affirm your love. He doesn't give specifics. He doesn't say buy them flowers. He doesn't say give them money. He doesn't say you know, fall down on your hands and knees and grovel in front of them. That's not, he's just saying affirm your love. Let them know that you have forgiven them, but not just that, but that you love them. You want to spend time with them. You are a family with them. This is over and done with. I'm beyond this now. Paul knows this is going to be tough, but it must be done. Much like him writing these letters, this is something we have to do. And we do all this together. Paul makes a note here that their forgiveness is enough for him to forgive. I find this incredibly it's just an, an, awesome, an awesome sentiment. 
uh, endless study could be done around this one thing. In Second uh, Corinthians 2.10, anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. You forgive him, I forgive him. How? What is that? Indeed, what, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. In those two verses, we see Paul sharing what I think is a very fatherly, warm sentiment. If you forgive them, then I'll forgive them. I don't necessarily have something against them, right, necessarily. I mean, I don't even know what, what harm maybe has been done. He may not even know what people have said about him. But he's saying sort of as a dad, hey, I'll tell you what, if you forgive him, I'll forgive him. I'm not going to bring it back up. I don't even want to know. Once it's forgiven, it's over. And I do this because what, anything that I have forgiven has been for your sake in the presence of Christ so that we wouldn't be outwitted by Satan. My forgiveness for you, if I've forgiven you of anything, is for Christ's sake. So if you forgive them, then I'll forgive them as well, for Christ's sake. Why? Why does that matter? Because Satan thrives in unforgiveness. If you kind of walk through the path of your life, let's say getting here, and you try to find a place where maybe it was really dark or there was lots of angst or anxiety in your life, chances are it stems around unforgiveness. I feel pretty confident about that. Somebody did you wrong, and they didn't even say a word to you, and you're struggling to forgive them while still being working with them or spending time with them, and how do I let them know that I'm hurt by this, and, but I don't want them to make a big deal of it, and I should, it's petty, and I should just let it go, and we lose sleep for months because we don't know how to forgive or if it's right to forgive or should we bring it up. We just don't know what to do. And then when you finally decide, I'm going to say something like, oh my gosh, I wish you'd said something six months ago. I had no idea you were so offended. We could have made this right. Now they lose sleep for another three months thinking you've been suffering for six months. Oh my gosh, I feel so terrible that this has been so awkward. No wonder we didn't talk at the office. No wonder we didn't. I, if only I'd known, I wish you'd said something. Well, now I feel bad. I should have said something. And the whole thing is because something bad happened and we didn't know what to do. Look at Paul's letter as an example. Hey, I just want to let you know, this was really a bummer for me and it, it kind of hurt me and I'm working through the forgiveness of it, but I just thought you'd like to know uh, and if little else, maybe you could just pray for me to get over this. And they might be like, well, I'm sorry you're mad about it, but I don't know what to tell you, right? Okay, well, they, I'll be praying for them to repent of that action. Because a loving family member, when you care and when you affirm your love for somebody that you love, when you hear somebody that you love say, what you did hurt me, you don't say, well, I don't know, tough nuts. <laughs> you know, buck up, buttercup, uh, that's life. You know, rubbing's racing. That's all we say to people we love. We say, oh my gosh, I had no idea. How can I help? How can I, how can I try to make it right? Let me know. Satan, if we, if we let those things get in there, oh man, it's a heyday, right? Because you get all these whispers and, hey, well, I think they, they know what they're doing, right? And, and look at all the people that think they're great, you know, and all these people, they don't even have any idea. Well, I'm going to start doing a little muckraking over here. I'll start spreading some stuff around like, well, they did this to me. They say, well, they didn't say they're sorry. I can't believe that. You walk into church, you see a whole bunch of people looking at each other like this. Like, what's going on here? Well, I don't know. Everyone's mad at everybody. There's 19 reasons that, that guy's mad at me, and I know it. I'm not going to say anything about it because it's not my place, right? But I know they're mad, and they ought to be. And, and, like, and, and here we go. Big churches. No one loves each other. Paul fears for this. Because once, once, once that's begun, it has nothing to do with Christ anymore, right? It's some sort of a hunting club or something. I don't know what it is, but it has nothing to do with the witness of Christ. People walk in, they feel awkward and tense, and they don't know what to do in the church. And, uh, Paul's saying, knock that off. First, let's get it back together. You've got to forgive. Work on forgiveness. Love each other. Do all of this together. I'm in it with you. Let's forgive each other and forgive en masse. And the big reason for that is to move forward. 
Paul talks a little bit about his desires to move forward. He said he wanted to meet his uh, compatriot Titus in Troas. That was his plan. Titus wasn't there. But there was an interesting opportunity there, right? So he shows up and he's waiting for Titus, let's say. And something's happening here in Troas. Now, his reason to go to Troas was to visit with Titus on his way to Macedonia. We know this. This is kind of the, 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 the order of things, right? But Titus wasn't there. While he was there waiting for Titus, he sees an interesting opportunity in Troas that wouldn't have been going to Macedonia, but this is interesting. But he ignores that and heads to Macedonia. I'm sure he wanted to wait for Titus. I'll wait, hang around, plus there's a cool opportunity, which would also work out pretty good. I can work on this, and if Titus shows up, I can visit with him, then head to Macedonia. But there was a timeline. There was a need in Macedonia, a big-time need in Macedonia. That's where Paul was heading. So even though Titus wasn't there, Paul's plan, there was another opportunity there, maybe Paul's plan, that was put aside because of God's will. Paul's convicted. It's been very clear to Paul that he's heading to Macedonia after a visit with Titus and Troas. He may not have even, the will of God might have said, go to Macedonia. And then Paul said, hey, I'm going to head through Troas on the way. I'll see Titus, right? So Paul, God says, go to Macedonia. Paul says, sounds good. I'll do that via Troas. I'll see Titus there. And God says, oh, will you? Okay, go ahead. So now he's wasting his time going to Troas. There's no Titus. Well, maybe I'll just call it a day. No, no, no. If I've learned anything from Jonah, it's I need to go where God has told me to go. So he hits the road and goes to Macedonia. So you might be thinking, oh, Paul's showing us how it's done, right? That's, that's the whole point of the story. Yes, yes and no. He's making a great point that God will call the shots. But he's not being heavy-handed about trust. This isn't an exercise of Paul so close to God that everything just comes together for him, right? I mean, if you guys were like, like I was with God, you wouldn't have any of these questions about you wouldn't be making bad decisions. I'm holy. Y'all need to be holy like me. We hear Paul saying things like that, but insofar as Christ is holy, yeah, but not Paul. These stories are a yes and a no. He's making a great point that God will call the shots and God's taking care of him, but he's also not being heavy-handed about this trust, this, this idea that like, well, I knew that God was with me the whole way, and uh, he made a decision to go, and it didn't work out. That's the part of the story that's about his own genius and strength. This isn't about Paul being an unbelievable planner and a, a true pillar of the, of the faith. This is about Paul being a day at a time depending on God. Go to Macedonia. Yes, God, let me swing through Trias and see Titus. Okay. Well, Titus isn't here. Ooh, and here's another opportunity. And God's sitting there saying, yeah, so what's it going to be? Is it going to be the thing that you and I both know you're called to do right now? Or is it going to be this little side quest that you're on because of your decisions? Paul says, you're right, God. I'll go to Macedonia. That's what I'm called to do. I'm going to go. He's telling this story to them because their plans for what they want to see with the church and Paul's plans for what he wants to see with the church, if they're not God's plans, are going to perpetually be an, a city without a friend. <laughs> this is where I wanted to be. I plan to come here. You know, on our way to the church I wanted to be, I thought we'd take a quick diversion over here, and we can, but nobody's here. And, Maybe I could set up shop here. Let's try this idea. No, it's not really what God had called us to do. It's nowhere near here in the scripture. And no one's really fit. But, but this is an interesting opportunity. And, you know, God never would open a door that, like, uh, maybe you open that door. <laughs> right? If you're being led in a certain direction, if scriptures call us to do something, that's not something we're going to set aside to do something of our own desire. 
What Paul's talking about here is you may not have a desire to make up with your friends or be nice or love them. Find that desire. Leave Troas and go to Macedonia. What's in Macedonia? Suffering for Christ. Well, why'd you go? I have to go where God sends me. Why? Because of Christ alone. Paul's thankful for his leading into Macedonia. If you were in our small group or heard the sermon last week, there was suffering in Macedonia. <laughs> but he's thankful for God's leading there. He's thankful for the people that are being saved by his suffering. And he's thankful that God's word is alive and it's not a joke. I love the way that he says this. It's, a, it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek thing. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. I'm not selling you the word of God as a trope, as a feel-good thing. I'm not making bumper stickers you can put on your car and think you're saved. As men of sincerity, commissioned by God in the sight of God, they speak in Christ. I don't know about you, that gives me chills. That's what I'm doing right now, as best I can. As a man of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, I speak in Christ alone. That's it. That's all I've got. My words, empty, fodder, ringing, clanging gongs, you name it. That's me. Speaking in Christ, though, that's different. And that's different than saying the word of God as a, hey, this will make you feel better. Here's the reason you can be healthy and wealthy. People use the Word of God all over the place. Peddlers of God's Word. Let us be, in the sight of God, men of sincerity and speak in Christ. So points to ponder. Forgive first. Love second. Partner third. And Christ throughout. So the first thing here, Paul's plea for forgiveness is amazing to me. The way that he approaches it in this book, he doesn't even know who needs to be forgiven. All right, he knows he's heard the murmurings. Maybe he does know who it is. It could have been some letters that told him names, but he's not bringing up names here. He's not saying, "Hey, forgive," you know, Elvira and Bocephus. That's not. He's not calling those people out. He's just saying, "Listen, there's people that are needing forgiveness, and you got to do it. If you don't do it, it's extremely dangerous." He knows the danger of unforgiveness. I say this because Paul walked the walk. He lived a life filled with unforgiveness. No lack of, of no, or no lack of hatred towards Christians, right? He started there before Christ got a hold of him. It was not about forgiveness. It was about vengeance. And he saw what Satan wrought inside the Jewish, the, the Jewish culture at that time. It rots and destroys and gives Satan, Satan a foothold. Unforgiveness is one of those things. There's a million little acronyms and they're all okay about you drink poison hoping somebody else will die. It's very true. Much of that's true, but the reality is when we, when we dwell on these, this notion, I've, I've been hurt and I've been wronged, we are not emulating Christ. Christ was hurt and wronged, but because of his hurt and wrong, we have eternal life, communion with the Father. So holding on to this and dwelling on things that were committed to us or maybe that we did to other people and we can't bring ourselves to let go of, it rots and destroys and Satan gets a foothold in us where we start thinking about, well, maybe I'm not saved, or maybe this isn't a bad church, or maybe that person is this or that or the other, and I can't even focus on the things of Christ because I'm so distracted. We must forgive with the grace and mercy of God as he forgave us. We are called to forgive with the same grace and mercy to others that, that God showed us. Second, love. 
Now, I'll confess, church, this is, the, this is the hardest one of all these for me. I always say it's easy to love the lovable. People I like, I got no problem spending time with. But it's hard for me to reaffirm my love for someone who I just forgave. Um, for us, not being God, forgiveness is often a process. And it can take more than just, you know what, I forgive you. Then you see them again, or they do something again that gets under your skin a little bit, and you're like, yeah, man. It turns out I, don't, I didn't forgive them. You know what, I did, but I'm going to do it again. This, to me, is a reminder that my forgiveness, my forgiveness needs to be redeemed as well. My forgiveness is not God's forgiveness. My forgiveness is fleeting Chris forgiveness. I'm sorry, hey, it's okay, it's fine with me. I can't be the only one here that said to somebody, hey, sorry I did that. And you're like, oh, it's so, no problem. And as soon as you turn your back, like, no problem, my foot. I can't believe they did that. I'm not going to say that to him anymore because I said out loud I forgive him. I'm a man of my word. But in my brain, it's that ding, 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 ding. I can't believe it. Duh. Because I'm not done. My forgiveness is imperfect, just like every other thing. I need my forgiveness to be redeemed as well. And we do that by practicing this, forgiving people, loving them. We can learn how to forgive more like Christ as we spend time in the Word and love and forgive each other in the church as Christ loved and forgave us. We emulate it. We practice it. We do it. It gets easier. It gets better. God's God's taking away some of our imperfections and replacing it with his perfect forgiveness. Third, partner up. I forgive you. I love you. Now let's get to work. I don't mean a big love fest where we gather and high five about God, not a holy huddle or ivory tower. None of that nonsense. I'm not talking about that. Yes, we, we do gather up and we worship together and we study together and that's fine and good. But if that's all we do, we are, we're... We're whitewashed tombs ourselves, right? We have a beautiful building and no one's welcoming. Nobody really knows what goes on there. It's like the, the, the Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. Nobody goes in and nobody comes out, right? <laughs> I guess it's a church. I don't know. Haven't seen anybody in years. Seems dark, right? Now comes the pastor and hobbles and then gave out golden tickets. We're not called to do any of that nonsense, right? We need to be out of the church witnessing to people straight away. We are the golden ticket insofar as we have the power and knowledge of Christ. We need to be about the work of our Father, that's our calling. When I say partner up, it's not gather up and say, man, look at us. We are so saved. That's awesome. Whew. Man, we just like, we're the best. Totally saved. God's so good. Amen, amen. Yeah, now what? Being saved is not the end game here. Coming to Christ, giving your life to him. What's that mean? If your life's sitting on your duff and waiting to die, that's not much to give to Christ. You didn't give him anything. Get to work. Christ has called us and chosen us, and we must work together. This is not an option. We know this because what's the point of forgiving and loving one another? If I didn't need to worry about it, we could all just go our separate ways, that'd be fine. But we're not. We're called to work together. We're a body. So many of these metaphors indicate a closeness beyond comprehension. We're not good friends. The brain and the heart, and the heart and the muscles aren't good buddies. We just haven't talked in years. No, they're talking every day. There's a lot of communication between my brain and my heart. If not, I'd fall down right here, dead. Because the heart doesn't know when to pump unless the brain tells it to do things. This is the way it all works. We're supposed to be like that, working together really, really tightly. And the fourth point is Christ throughout. You could start with Christ. You could put it in the middle points. That's okay. But I put it at the end as a reminder. First, middle, last, always Christ. I need to forgive. Forgive in Christ. I need to love. Love in Christ. I need to work together. Partner in Christ. First, middle, last, good, bad, ugly. 
No, we don't hear church people talking much about the ugly work of Christ. Let me tell you, it was no picnic on that cross. If you've ever watched Passion of the Christ, it's a tough, it's a tough movie. Because what he endured physically, just physically, is gut-wrenching. It's hard to put eyes on. That's ugly stuff. Now, when we talk about the wrath of the Father, that's beyond comprehension. We can't even, there's no possible way we could ever wrap our mind around that degree of suffering. But even the physical suffering on earth is grotesque, almost beyond words. Christ everywhere. When things are good in the church, keep Christ in the middle. When things are going bad in the church, keep Christ in the middle of it. Seek his word, seek his will, pray. And when things are ugly, full tilt, rioting in the church, and people are out of here and starting fights and throwing blows, all that, we got to get back to Christ. We can't fix that. Let's fix the fighting issue, and then we'll talk about Jesus. That is where everybody gets stuck, trying to get, be, let's stop sinning, guys, come on. Then, then we can talk about saving you. No, no, Christ first. Good, bad, ugly, the answer, Jesus. We must keep Christ front and center. He is the reason that we can commune with our sovereign Father. If not for Christ and the work that he's done, there is no hope of us ever doing anything useful as a church. We may as well just be going out wandering, like, well, let's worship a doorknob. It wouldn't matter. Christ has done something that nobody in history has ever done. And that is exactly why we do what we do. So what about us? What can we do today? Forgive someone today. Might have to go back a ways. If you're, great, if you're good about forgiveness and this isn't a struggle for you, kudos. Uh, awesome. That's a blessing. Share that information and talk about how and why that's become the case. But if not, forgive someone. I don't mean you've got to go up to their house and buy them flowers, but start that process. Tell someone that you love them. That's an easy one. Affirm your love. Now, I say tell someone, but if you can, if you can affirm it beyond words, I encourage you to do that. And this isn't just Chris's good life advice for a Sunday afternoon. This is scripture. Paul said to do it, not me. Paul. Third, find somewhere you can work for Christ. If you're trying to find a place to get plugged in, we'd love to have you here. Uh, you know, we're doing our best to get some work done for Christ. We're a small church and fledgling in a lot of regards, behaving much like a church plant these days. But that doesn't mean we can't get stuff done for Jesus, right? But we need hands. And if you've got some hands, you want to come work, let's go. Let's go. And if you've been reticent to do that because you've got some forgiveness issues, you don't feel loved by the church, please let us know. We want to remedy that kind of stuff. If we need to, if we need to have a conversation with somebody about forgiveness, if you've been wounded by the church or people in the church, you felt the church was somehow set against you, uh, brothers and sisters, please know that is not our intent. We want to correct that. We want to work through this process. We want to talk about the forgiveness that's needed. We need to apologize. Let's do that. Let's mend fences. Let's affirm love and let's get to work. The time is too short. And finally, throughout all three of those first bullets, know that Christ is for us and with us. Christ is not actively working against us. We talked about last week that everything in God's will is a yes. There are no no's when it comes to God's will. If what we're doing is pursuing the will of God, the answer is yes. Christ is for us and with us in his will. He'll see us through whatever we need to do. Forgiveness, love, kingdom work. Christ is preceding us and with us and follows. It's an awesome promise, church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this scripture that on its face seems maybe kind of disconnected or challenging in some regards, but as we study it and we, we spend time with the word, 
and we seek the truth of the scripture with the help of the Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that we, we see that it's, it's beautifully connected to everything. That even in a, a subtle chapter, what we see Paul's context showing us and his words very directly showing us how important it is for us to work together. How important it is for us to mend fences, to forgive one another for actual wrongs committed. But not just to stop at forgiveness. It's not enough to forgive and then never speak to them again so that we don't have to be hurt again. There's, we need to love that person. We need to affirm our love for them. They need to know that we love them. We don't just forgive them, but we love them. And then we're going to not just, I forgive you and I love you, but now let's go do something together for Christ. Lord, this is, these are not easy, easy things to do. And I would wager under our own ability would be a lot of failure, Lord, but Somehow, miraculously, your Holy Spirit comes into our presence. It lives within us. Our bodies have become your temple. Uh, It's just unbelievable the things that we are capable of doing because of what you have done, not because of us and our capability. So when we go out and seek to forgive and we seek to love and we feel like we can't do it and we want to partner, but I don't know where to go, help us to realize it's not about us. It's not about our capacity to forgive or love. It's about your capacity to forgive and love. And that's what we need. We need you to redeem our forgiveness, redeem our love, redeem our service to make it closer to your forgiveness, your love, and your service.